Thank you, Mr. Randy. Uh, Church at the Red Door, here we go. You ready for this? We're going to continue our progress through uh, the Gospel of Luke. You know, I hope this has been impactful for you lately because it has impacted me. You know, a lot of people say, well, we appreciate you coming and, you know, opening this up. Look, I am the biggest beneficiary of this. To go back in and just read the gospel. I've read these gospels 10,000 times, but there's always something the Holy Spirit can unpack some things in our heads that we've never seen before and take us into a deeper relationship with Jesus. You know, in, in the end, it's about relating to, walking with, journeying with Jesus. And I think this morning is going to, again, maybe give you another piece in the fabric of your life, another way of understanding, well, how do we walk with Jesus? What does that look like? I mean, that's the purpose. This isn't, as we say often, not just a history lesson, but actually something that begins to open the word to us. And we know that, in fact, Jesus is the word become flesh. So, I hope, I'm hoping this morning is going to be impactful for you. Last week, if you'll remember, we looked at this expectant, the expectant ones, and we left Jesus as an, as an infant uh, with Anna and Simeon in the temple and his dedication. And, and uh, they, they were just amazing people. Why? Because they had been expecting the one, expecting the Messiah, the consolation of Israel. They had been waiting for the Messiah, and both of them had a, an intuitive sense. Now, obviously, uh, Simeon had a direct promise that he would see the consolation of Israel before he died. And Anna was there with prayer and fastings every day in the temple, just waiting. And both of them recognized, and I, that's what I wanted you to get from last week. Are you a person that can recognize what God's doing in your marriage, in your family relationships, here in the Coachella Valley, the Palm Springs area, or wherever you may be from. We have a lot of Northwesterners and people from Dallas and Chicago. And are you aware of what God is maybe doing in and around you? Uh, he's looking for those who are expectant, those are, that are waiting and watching and listening and then ready to respond. So that's what we saw last week. So you ready for this? Here we go. All right, we're going to progress on. Uh, we're going to go to Luke chapter 2, if you have your Bibles this morning. And we're going to start in verse 39. And we're not going to get very far before we're going to have to stop and go, wait, 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 what gives here? And I'm going to explain that in a minute. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Luke chapter 2, verse 39. It says, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, that just was a picture of both Mary and Joseph after the uh, prescribed eight days, taking Jesus back into the temple to be dedicated or presented. Uh, after they had performed everything according to the law, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, you're just reading Luke and you're going, okay, so they finished this. That was maybe the eighth day. And then on the ninth day, they got in their caravan with their folks and they started headed back towards Nazareth. Well, I hate to do this to you, but some of your nativity scenes, you're going to have to rearrange a little bit because the reality is, and we don't get this from Luke, and some people say, see, there is 
conflict between the Gospels. Uh, Bart Ehrman and others talk about, well, you know, they're, they're, the Gospels are constantly in conflict, and there is no conflict here, but boy, do we have to read between the lines a little bit this morning, because if we were to go back to Matthew chapter 2, we would get something else that occurred. It's after the dedication uh, and after these magi uh, appear, these men from the east, then they flee to Egypt because of Herod, and eventually they come back, but the, this doesn't say anything about that. Now again, does that mean that Luke, that Luke has an incorrect account of what happened? Or is he, like many other biographers that have written by look, if I was to describe something to you, we've talked about this, if I were to try and describe something for you that happened in my life 20 years ago, I'm going to just pick some pick some points that were relevant to the story I'm telling and maybe the audience I had at that moment. And we've already talked about how the Gospels speak to slightly different issues and different audiences, Matthew being more to the Jewish mind. And so Matthew includes, Luke does not. That does not mean it didn't occur. Of course it occurs. So at some point, and I'm going to try to give you a timeline this morning, and I, I think is a probable timeline. At some point, Jesus... Mary, Mary and Joseph flee from Herod to Egypt, spend some time there, and eventually they work their way back to Nazareth. You know, I personally believe, I, I have a strong sense, especially for Matthew 2 and some of the language we get, that Joseph, well, if this is going to be the king, he's got to be near Jerusalem. And he knew, I'm sure he knew the prophecies of, of Micah talking about this, this infant that would come from Bethlehem and rule and, and the tribe of Judah and all this. And, and so when we get this, I, I, I can't imagine that he thought, well, I'm rearing a king. I'm going to go back to Nazareth. I think it was his full intention to stay. But let's, let's press in. What does give? Is Jesus just a you know, 40-ish day old young guy and then they, a kid, and then they make their way back to Nazareth or is something else happening here and did something occur that we don't get in the Luke narrative? And I'm, I'm telling you, it's clear they go down to Egypt. Now, here is a probable timeline, but again, like I said, folks, it's going to kind of mess up your, uh, your ideas, your traditional ideas about kind of when the Magi came. And by the way, can I just say something? So one of the home groups that were meeting said, you know, that's just Jeff's Texas accent when he says Magi. It's actually pronounced Magi. Uh, a lot of people are like, why didn't he say Magi? We are Magi, or it's, it's actually Magi. And I know because Merriam-Webster told me. So anyway, so let's press on here. You ready? Okay, so here is a possible timeline for actually how these events went down. Number one, of course, after visiting the temple, Joseph and Mary probably returned then to Bethlehem, okay, which is very near Jerusalem. If you've ever been with me to Israel, you will have known we took, we take a day. It's today, uh, Bethlehem actually resides in part of that portion that we consider the West Bank but very near Jerusalem. Uh, and in the months since Jesus' birth, Joseph had probably sought temporary work there. Why? Well, 
he was looking for something and maybe eventually more permanent because it's only possible that he was thinking that, like I said earlier, that if he's going to rear a king, they couldn't go back up to their original Galilee area. This is the most probable. And then Simeon and Anna, as we get from Luke chapter 2, it says that Anna was telling everybody, praising the Lord and, and spreading the word. And so word was getting around Jerusalem that the king had arrived. And now, of course, this is going to set off some real flags in Herod's mind, coupled with these magi presenting themselves. And then at some time, at some point in the future, probably not when Jesus is an infant. You know, our traditional nativity scenes give us a picture of these uh, these wise men coming and there, you know, there's always three. We don't know if there were three or four or five. We know there were three gifts, but we don't know that. And they appear just almost simultaneous to the birth of Jesus. And, and of course, that probably is not the way it happened. They probably at some point, we don't know exactly when, but at some point as Jesus is, is growing, they have not yet returned to Nazareth. At some point, they show up and they, present, they are presented with the gifts. In fact, the Bible says that they come to a home. And we know that that was not exactly where the birth occurred. Where was this home? Where? Well, we don't know. Did they have a home? Maybe get a home in Bethlehem at some point? Did, again, Joseph begin to look for some possible work? Well, that's probably, that's most probable given the two narratives put together. And then lastly, the Magi, they appear, they, they present, and then they make their way back. Now, Herod had said, when you find the child, come tell me, and they didn't. They immediately, because they had been given this information from above, they make their way back and they go back a different way. They never go back and report to Herod. Now, we don't know exactly how long that took Herod to recognize this, that they had you know, where were they? We always think when we read back, and we do the same with biographies, we read back and we go, this happened, and then this happened, and that was the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and sometimes months or even years can lapse before a particular incident in someone's life occurs. So at some point, Herod recognizes that, hey, they haven't returned, and he begins to seek the death of this king. Now he knew Bethlehem. Now why would he have killed every had everyone under the age of 2 killed if he knew that the birth was just had just occurred? Well, he wouldn't have. Chances are there was a significant time that had elapsed between the time that Jesus was born and this edict from Herod to go to Bethlehem and kill every male child under the age of 2. So we don't know. Now, Joseph receives a dream, and this is what we don't get from the Luke account, but we do get from the Matthew account. Joseph receives a dream to go to Egypt. Now, this is going to play big in the rest of our morning this morning. Why? Why the purpose of actually going and fleeing to Egypt? It's amazing when you put the tapestry all together, this, the way this story comes together. Clearly, it's another picture of Jesus recapitulating, if you will, the very journey that Israel took out of Egypt. And we get that in Hosea 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt I called my son Israel. The nation of Israel came out of Egypt, and we'll talk about that in a minute, went through the Red Sea into the wilderness and eventually into the Promised Land. We too are called out of Egypt. We too go through our baptism. We spent a whole year on this. Go through our baptism, a picture of the Red Sea. Go into the wilderness, be disciple, learn, and eventually are called into our calling and we take spiritual land. We spent a lot of time on that. 
But there's a purpose. God uses the evil in Herod's own heart to send Jesus, Joseph, and Mary to Egypt. Now, we don't know exactly how long they were there, but at some point, they are told, they get this information, again, an angelic visitation, they get this information that Herod has now died. Now, by the way, just for as a history lesson, Jesus, uh, this Gregorian calendar and all this that works, that Jesus was born at some point between, I know this sounds funny, before Christ, B.C. He was probably born around between 4 and 6 B.C. Clearly, Herod, we know when Herod actually died, and he died uh, in 4 B.C. So at some point, Jesus had to Jesus had to be born prior to Herod's death because that's what we get from the biblical account. So somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C. would have been the time that Jesus was born. Okay, so what happens then? Well, they return. Joseph brings his family back from Egypt. And, you know, it's real clear. I want to I want to read this to you real quickly because I think this will help support a little bit of this. Like, now, some of this may be radically new to some of you, but it is important, especially if you're reading and becoming a student, that you read the gospel and say they flee to Egypt, and then you read Luke's account and said, well, where did they? They didn't flee to Egypt. There's a conflict here. Well, there's no conflict. We just kind of have to put it all together. Now, when... Uh, when Joseph had heard that uh, someone else was re reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the regions of Galilee. It seems that Joseph was intent on returning to the Jerusalem area, maybe more specifically Bethlehem. And, and eventually he came and resided in a city called Nazareth, Nazareth, that which was spoken to the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. So this is amazing if you go back into the prophets that it said Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. He was going to be king of Judah. He was going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he was also going to be called a Nazarene. All this is amazing because these prophets are seeing this hundreds of years before. But I think Joseph was intent on returning and maybe he had some perm work that was impermanent and hoping that it would become permanent. We don't know. And yet he's warned, now go ahead and go to Galilee because of this new ruler in place of Herod. So this is important to see. Now, why is, um, why is this so vital to our study? Because of where we're going to go next. We're going to continue in the narrative, but I want you to see that our path, just remember this, this is how we're setting up this morning, Jesus' journey is our journey in a figurative way. Jesus' journey is our journey. Okay, so let's continue with the narrative here. Back to Luke chapter 2, and we get to then verse 41. So 39 says what? They returned to Nazareth, and that's what happened. Evidently, there may have been a couple of years here of Egypt, uh, from Egypt. So between 38 and 39 in your Luke chapter 2, there was something that occurred here significantly in probably upwards of about two years. Okay, now verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. So now maybe 10 or so years had passed. Jesus may be two-ish goes back to Nazareth, 10 years past, he's now 12. That doesn't mean it was the first time. Maybe his parents always went, and that's kind of what this alludes to every year. Maybe they did take Jesus when he was three, four, and five, but 
this is the next chronicled account and it's when he's 12 and this this incident here is going to set us up to ask also another question who is jesus what is who is the nature of jesus is he god or is he man how does this work and so anyway as they were returning after spending the full number of days the boy jesus stayed behind in jerusalem and they didn't have any idea they didn't have any idea. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan, and they went an entire day's journey. Can you imagine a caravan of people making their way back up north? It's going to take several days to get there. They get a whole day's journey in, and they start looking around, and they're like, okay, now where's Jesus? Now, you got to realize if it was just a family, then people would know within a very short period of time that somebody in the family wasn't there. But this is a large caravan of people. They did it, I'm sure. So there are robbers along the way, and it was just their power in numbers here. So a lot of these, uh, a lot of these uh, Galileans would come down for the fe prescribed feast, and now they're making their way back up in this large caravan. It's easy to see how, you know, Mary could think, and Joseph, sometimes the men would kind of fall to the back, and the women would kind of lead a little bit, and the men would take up the rear, and the, I'm sure Joseph thought Mary, uh, you know, Jesus was with Mary, and Mary thought maybe he was with, and eventually they realized, where is Jesus, a whole day. Imagine how furious you would be and terrified. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three more days, three days, they're looking in Jerusalem. They can't find him. Can you imagine the terror? So they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So clearly the grace of God is on him. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? You can imagine. Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for it. Do you know what you've put us through? And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Now, we're going we're gonna to dive into this. This is, this is deep water here, folks. He said, but they didn't understand the statement which he had made to them. What is he talking about? I, I think trying to raise Jesus as God and man would leave me e eternally perplexed as, as a parent. I cannot imagine what they went through and how they pondered these things and didn't understand what Jesus may have been talking about. We're only given a few things. Now, by the way, this is the first recorded uh, language we get coming out of Jesus' mouth in all the Bible right here. You know, why, what, what, why are you, why were you looking for me? Didn't you realize I had to be in my father's house? And since they didn't understand the statement he had made and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them and his mother treasured all these things in her heart she's holding these things in her heart having really no clue as to what's going on most of the time i can imagine and then verse 52 now catch this and jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with god and with men okay i want to go back and unpack three different ports and parts of this little 41 through 52 and we're going to start with this first thing after three days. Can you imagine the terror that would have gone through their hearts? At Number one, where's Jesus after a day? First, you're angry. You go back to Jerusalem, and then you can't find your son for three days. You know, 
an incident like this happened with Laura and myself when our oldest daughter, Savannah, was only three years old. And I'm going to tell you about that story because although I was spared the terror of it, my wife was not and neither were uh, Laura's parents. On we were, I was working in Aspen. This was, uh, you know, 18, 19 years ago. I was working in Aspen at the Maroon Creek Club at the time as a director of instruction. Many of you know that I have a professional golf background. And, uh, and so I was in Aspen working, and we would rent uh, often a home in the Snowmass area, which is right, if you know that area at all, Aspen and Snowmass are really kind of buttressed up uh, one against another, and they're actually growing closer as the area kind of opens up. But beautiful, just beautiful ski slopes and everything. And, and so it was Savannah's third birthday and uh, they had gone, they were gonna go to this big kind of festival time thing. There was face painting and balloons and everything. It wasn't specifically for Savannah, but it also happened to uh, be her third birthday. And so there were thousands of people there and there was a, it was on the ski slopes of, of Snowmass and there's a bunch of shops and everything and parking kind of over on the side. and. And, uh, and then stairs, and it's very common kind of jungle, you know, because you, you're on the side of a mountain, you've got stairs going up to other homes that are up here, and then stairs going down this way, and stairs to parking, and stairs down to restaurants. It's just kind of a, you're, so imagine that there's a, there's a real change in elevation as you're going around, so you can kind of go up and down and around and back and forth, and thousands of people, and, and so Laura was there, and, and Tatum was only, you know, one years old, and Tess wasn't born yet, and uh, here we have, uh, Savannah, she goes, she wanted to get her face paint. It's her birthday, and Laura's parents are there, and they're, celebrating, they're having a uh, great time that day at, the, at this little festival. Well, Savannah goes over, and she gets in line. She's three, and she's waiting to have her face painted, and Laura's trying to corral, you know, Tatum and all this, and, and uh, she looks back, and she goes, okay, and she's standing with her, and then she gets distracted with Tatum, and, and then Laura's parents come up and talk, and, you know, where's Savannah? And she goes, well, she's just right there in line. Uh, she was just a few feet away, right there in line, waiting to have her face painted, and Laura turns around, and there's no Savannah. There's no Savannah, and she naturally he begins to panic like where is she and she asked the clown that was doing the face painting she had, have you seen my daughter have you seen my daughter and she was gone i mean she was gone now i'm going to take you back one day before this event one day before so this is a pertinent part of the story so uh, they're in an elevator in this kind of same area and they're riding up the elevator and it's Laura and the girls and then there's a, a woman on the, on the elevator and Laura said she was tall, super tall, you know, over six feet tall. She had blonde hair and she smelled strongly, this is what Laura remembers, smelled strongly of perfume and cigarettes. And they were on this, you know, you can really get that. And, and Laura's uh, olfactory senses are amazing anyway. And so, and this woman reaches down and she begins to talk to the girls and really take an interest. And, you know, Laura's just observing and they're talking back. And, and, and she's real gracious to the girls. And that was it. And then they get off the elevator and she doesn't see her again. So now, back to the story. So here we are. Uh, it goes, five minutes go by, 10 minutes go by, the police get involved. Again, thousands of people, a million different exits, a million different ways this child could have gone or be taken at this point. 15 minutes elapsed, 20 minutes elapsed, 25 minutes elapsed. Now they're a good half an hour into her being completely gone. Now you can imagine Laura's feeling sick at her stomach. 
she's um, she's terrified, as are uh, her parents, and, and we. This is an unimaginable. Maybe some of you have had this experience. Prayerfully, none of you have actually lost a child, uh, but maybe you have, and this brings up those kinds of memories. So they're a good half an hour into it, and she is terrified, absolutely stark terrified. All these people and crowds, and she looks up, and there's a kind of a, a, a another level up here, and there she sees Savannah's head well above the crowd, moving through the crowd, and she looks up, and guess what? The woman who smelled of perfume and cigarettes has her on her shoulders, and she's walking through the crowd. Had she just been, you know, holding her hand and walking through, she they would have never seen her, and she was up. Now, at this point, you can imagine, is she... Has she stolen ZZ? I mean, is this a is this a nefarious character? I mean, who is this? So, I mean, Laura takes off, bolts up, screaming, Savannah, Savannah, and they stop. She said, Laura says, I don't even remember whether I thanked her, whether I asked what the deal was. The only thing she said was, I found her in the parking lot. Now, you got to realize from where this face painting was taking place, this was a long journey for a three-year-old to make to go all the way through this crowd, throngs of people, through all these shops and restaurants and everything, and make her way out actually into the parking lot. Now, I've got to tell you, Savannah's response, (laughs) not quite like Jesus, but Savannah's response at three years old was, I needed to go to the bathroom. So she just took off. She just took off. Laura looks back at that moment. She never saw that woman again. She saw her the day before. She She saw her that day. She had had this strange incident of the woman engaging with the children the day before. And then she reappears. And then she she has Savannah, and then she's gone. She never sees her again, doesn't know her name. She goes, I don't even remember if I thanked her. She just kind of disappeared into the crowd, and we never saw her again. Laura's point to me was, I know what angels smell like. So for, I'll just say, if you've had an experience and you, and you, get, on, uh, you get on a bus or you're in a public place, and there's somebody that shows up smelling strongly of perfume and cigarettes, you know you're in the presence of an angel. So, I mean, we've had this experience. Can you imagine the terror after three days, not 30 minutes, actually maybe four days. It was a day's journey in, a day's journey back, three days in Jerusalem, potentially four days not knowing where your son is. Can you imagine how upset, anxious, terrified, all those things, isn't it a reasonable response? Why have you treated this way? And the question emerges, and this gets us to the nature of Jesus. Did Jesus sin in this? Was Jesus at fault? I mean, if this is, then the Bible's in conflict with itself because it says he was tempted in every way we are and yet without sin. So who was this? Who was this? Who was this Jesus? Who was he? Well, I I think it's important to see that Jesus certainly never sinned. And it's also very important to see that, well, Jesus was making a claim here, even at age 12. Jesus was making a very clear claim to be God. 
why are you looking for me? Didn't you realize? And not only the fact that he was the sovereign God, he was trying to remind his own parents the prophecies that had been given them about who he was. He was God. Yes, he was in the form of flesh and blood. He took the form. He descended, and now he's a 12-year-old boy. But it didn't eliminate the reality that he was also the creator of all things. Now, I'm going to have Lori and Todd Coonrad read for us. I'm going to take you back to what just reminds you one of the prophecies that had been given about the son that they were about to have. Lori and Todd, I sure miss seeing you. Please take it away. Good morning, Church of the Red Door. We are Todd and Lori Coonrad. We've been worshiping with all of you for several years, and we are happy to be with you this morning. We happen to live in Palm Desert year-round, and we know that many of you are unable to join us this year for various circumstances. And we get that it's oftentimes a roller coaster ride um, at this exact moment in history. We know that personally because about 10 days ago, we got to meet our second grandson for the very first time. And then this past week, Todd's mother went to be with Jesus, um, which was a great, tremendous relief for all of us, but still a time of sadness. So we are happy to be celebrating the Advent season with you. And we really do appreciate that um, Emmanuel is God with us every day, all the time. And so Todd has our scripture reading. Scripture reading is Matthew 1, 20 through 23. But when he had thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. That's our scripture reading. Thank you, Lori and Todd. So what was the prophecy? That they were going to have a son and his name was going to be Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. This is as if Jesus was saying, now remember, I know right now you feel like I'm just your son and I am. That's that tension, that dynamic, unending tension of trying to raise God. Can you imagine? And yet... It's Jesus' subtle reminder to his own parents, don't forget the fact that I realize I'm in subjection to you while simultaneously being a sovereign ruler and creator of you. Can you imagine this? I mean, I, it just blows my mind to try to think about what must have been going through her. And I can only imagine that Mary did the same thing again. She just treasured these things in her heart, as the Bible clearly says. Joseph had to be pulling his hair out. Who? Are, what are we dealing with? And they had no con. They really struggled to understand, as you can imagine. And then, lastly, and I think this is important. Why did Jesus have to be in his father's house? Well, I'll give you my take on this. I think 
that because of what we learned, he continued in subjection and he kept increasing in wisdom and stature. Jesus was subjected to the same temptation we are, which is not to be engaged in the word, not to be engaged in his calling, not to be, he was tempted in the same way. And yet he was without sin. What, what he, I think what he was doing, he was in there, he was studying. He had to learn like we did. In one hand, he's God. On the other, other hand, he's got to go through the progress of learning. I know this is baffling. It, it's hard to put this together. But what was he learning about? Well, this was, this was the Feast of Passover. Possibly he was there with the religious leaders talking about the meaning of the Passover. And possibly he was recognizing now in the Passover that he, in fact, was going to be the Passover lamb. Maybe this is the first point. I, I'm just speculating. Maybe this is the first point in his own growth of wisdom and understanding that he's in here in the temple, which he had to be because it's his father's house. He's the son of God. And now he's learning about what the prophets have written. And what is he learning? He's learning that there will be a Passover lamb. And he knows at this point, possibly, that in fact, he might be that Passover lamb. Speculation, I know, but you got to understand, this is exactly the reason that he stayed behind. So where does that leave us? Number one, was he God or was he man? We all, we all tend to fall off, like most things, on one side of the horse or the other. What, what is your tendency? I'm going to ask you this morning, what is your tendency? Let me give you some examples. When you, uh, do you make the mistake of thinking, well, Jesus is too busy. I mean, if he, you know, if he is God, he's, he's way out there. He's too busy to care about my, you know, little intricate details of my life. And uh, he's not, he's not, he's not relatable. He's not close to me. It's a, in fact, I, I might even tend towards uh, thinking he was, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, he's just way out there. That's, he's just the God, you know, he's God. Well, this is the mistake uh, historically and theologically of Docetism, which is a philosophy that says, no, God can never come down and take on human flesh. There was no incarnation. He kind of, I'm not suggesting that someone that would hold that position, but the reality is, is when, you come, when he came down, he wasn't really that close. He, he, he's too far away. He's too unknowable, and he's not uh, immersed. He never went to the cross and never, uh, he, he was, uh, no, he was, and this is called Docetism, and it was a big battle in the early church to try to who was Jesus? Who was the nature of Jesus? Was he God? Yeah, he was God, clearly God, but he wasn't much in the way of man. And then the flip side is, no, he was more man than anything. In fact, he was just an exalted man. We call this adoptionism. Somehow God adopted this wonderful, amazing human being, and he became, in that sense, the son of God, and he, he lived in a, a virtuous, amazing life, and then uh, God kind of adopted him into the family. He was just an exalted person. And maybe you fall off on that side. Well, he's just a man. He, he can't answer my prayers. I shouldn't be worshiping him. We tend one way or the other, and I can imagine Mary and Joseph would have had the same struggle, don't you think? One day, we have God. We're raising God. We remember the prophecies. This is God with us. This is Emmanuel. This is, this is who this is. We've been given this amazing task to raise God. And then on the other days, it's like, Jesus, where, where are you? We've been traveling all day. We're anxiously looking for you. Why did you do this to us? 
not recognizing that this was in fact the spotless lamb. He was without sin. They were taken to school, coming back and understanding who God, who their son was again. But you can see the daily tension between, is he God or is he man? Is he God or is he man? And there are places in your life that you need to understand. Jesus struggles and was tempted like you did. He struggled through these temptations and yet he was perfect. If you're depressed or discouraged or Jesus was tempted with all of that, but he never succumbed to it. But he was tempted as we are. And yet he's also God. Read Psalm 147, he, the constellations, he put them in place. He's the creator of all things. All things have been created by him and for him. And nothing's been created that wasn't created through him. I mean, so it's both, both God and man. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 through 16. Listen, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now catch this, verse 13. And there's no creature hidden from his sight. And all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Okay, some say that's not Jesus. I think it's specifically referencing Jesus, as many of the common commentators do. There's a tension here, right here in this passage. Okay, so here's the one whose nothing is hit. Our hearts are open to him. We can see that in the life of Jesus, and we'll see that as we go through Luke. He can read people's mail, man. He can read it. He knows what's going on in the human heart. Everything's laid bare before his eyes. And yet, look here at the second part. Therefore, since we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. God became man. God was tempted. How can God be tempted, you may say? Because he took on the form of a man and subjected himself to our experience. Don't get too far and say, well, God can't understand what I'm going through. God's too distant. God's just a ruler and a mean-spirited judge up there somewhere, or he's too far away. No, he hasn't. He's come to earth. He took on human flesh. That's what we get in this passage. We get this tension between, no, Jesus is God. I'm in my father's house, I, and yet he's having to be in subjection to his parents. Can you imagine being in subjection to teenagers, and you're the creator of all the cosmos, the trillions of galaxies? It seems so, well, it seems so amazing to me. If I hadn't experienced Jesus, I would say this was just a tall tale. But when I see the prophets and Jesus systematically fulfilling them and then my experience with Christ over these last 25 plus odd years, I am shocked. I am more shocked to realize that he did all this for us. Matthew Poole says, To this God-man no spirit nor thought can be hid. It shall not be so from the efficacious power of his word, much less shall infidelity or hypocrisy be hid from it, or his most piercing eye. Look, our hearts are laid bare before the God-man. And yet, he's also been tempted. And that's, it's hard, it seems so mutually exclusive, folks, but it's not. Lastly, and this is what I want to finish with this morning, this is what I draw from this passage. It's clear, to, it's clear that Jesus was recapitulating this journey of Israel. Clear. 
right? He's Egypt, coming out of Egypt again, then, his, then eventually his baptism when he is 30-ish, his baptism and then crossing the Jordan, being tempted. We've talked about that. Then that's our same call. We are to come out of Egypt. We're to go through our own baptism. We're to go into the wilderness, be discipled, and let God begin to break down those old places that are still fortified in many of our lives, the love of the world. He begins to break those things down. Then he begins his ministry. We are called, each one of us, with our gifting to move into the execution of our gift. Lastly, he connected with a missional community. For him, it was 12 guys that he, he chose through prayer to do life and ministry with. He had a missional community. And lastly, he just gives up his life on the cross. And we too, as Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. So we can see that. Now, here's the question for you this morning. Does God find you in the temple? Would others find you in the temple? Now, there is no literal temple anymore. That temple has long been destroyed in Jerusalem. And that's not even your local church building. God, the church is people. Does God find you in the temple? Does God find you worshiping in community? Because we know now collectively us together being built into a temple, a dwelling place for God in the spirit. Does God find you amidst the temple, which are other people that are missional and thinking about the kingdom of heaven? Does God find you as a worshiper? Does God find you as someone who's always wanting to learn and when they learn, be willing to change course in their lives, to go from hoarding to generosity, to go from their interest to the interest of the king? It's clearly in the life of Jesus. And lastly, don't we realize that we too are sons and daughters of God now? John 1, 11 says this through 13, he came to his own and to those who were his own, they didn't receive him. But as many as received him, that's, that's me and hopefully you this morning, to him he gave the right to become children of God. Can you imagine that? You, like Jesus, a son and daughter of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of the blood or of the will of the flesh or even the will of man, but of God. What about Jesus? Well, you know, he's, Jesus had grace. I mean, you know, in fact, the Bible clearly says, John 1, 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were what? Were realized through Jesus. Yeah, he had a special grace on his life. I mean, we can't be like Jesus. I mean, he, he is special grace. We'll catch what the Bible also says. Second Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy, listen to what he says. Second Timothy 1, 8. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. That's what we're talking about. If you want to live for the kingdom and live for the good news, then there's a suffering that's involved in that. According to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus. See, the grace that was on Jesus, now that we're participants in the gospel and the new life that he's offered us, the same grace that was given to Jesus, who was full of grace and truth and everything was grace and truth were realized through him, has actually been flowing into us through the Holy Spirit. Yes, you can follow in the footsteps of Jesus. I, I think this is a very practical way to view. Some people say they hear, follow me, and they don't really know what that means. Again, here's the template. And then lastly, if we are called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, 
Ultimately, this means, like Jesus, we'll have to lay down our lives. We don't like to hear that, but it's true. And it also, and this is the paradox, it brings joy when we lay down our lives. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. So you know John 3, 16, but this is 1 John 3, 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, so that what? So that we ought to lay down our lives, lay down our lives for the brothers. So uh, this passage, uh, this is loaded, man. It gives us, it speaks to the nature of who the nature of the very nature of Jesus. God, yes. Man, yes. Fully God, fully man. I know, hard to get your arms around. Again, we see a perfect display of both in this little passage. It also helps us understand that his journey is our journey. His death to his own interest for others should become the very clarion call that we have for our own lives. Will you too, church at the red door, will you lay down your lives for the brothers? Why? For the advancement of the kingdom. Okay, I hope this has been helpful for you this morning. I, I think this is, a, this is an exciting study. Uh, this Luke, it really begins to explode if you go a little bit deeper. I'm sorry again to kind of mess up your nativity ideas, but uh, let's try to get our, our firm grasp around exactly those early pictures. And again, I um, mean, go back and study this. You can go to uh, I got questions, you know, .org. And at, if you have some of these deep penetrating questions, I got this timeline straight off that. It's just very simple. It's a beautiful website. Got questions. Uh, and it's wonderful. So anyway, I hope this has been helpful for you. Uh, let me close in prayer. And then I'm going to turn it over to Paul for communion. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the God-man. Thank you for what he came to do is to reconcile man and God. Took on human flesh. Lord, we will never be able to ever pay you back for that. But we can lay down our lives as a worshipful act. Maybe this morning you want to do that. You just want to lay down your lives as a worshipful act. Commit, recommit, maybe to a greater degree than you ever have before. Commit your life to a loving king who you will live eternally with. Lord, I, I thank you. You see those people that just prayed that prayer alongside myself. You see that. In Jesus' name, amen.